This semester at Lawrence Street, what we're doing right here, right now, thank you, we are discussing uh, the Minor Prophets. These are 12 small books in the Old Testament. Uh, they are called minor because they're small, not because they're not important. Uh, we're studying one minor prophet a week. We're talking about the, prof- the prophet's book, and then we're kind of zeroing in on a passage, a key passage that represents what the prophet's talking about in general. Um, because we're, these minor prophets are life-challenging, and because they're often graphic, we're calling our series Postcards from the Edge. Postcards from the Edge. Yes, these books are sometimes out there, and sometimes very confrontational to our heart motives and to who we are, but they're also thoughtful and well-timed words of God for us. I want us to remember that as we're kind of marching through um, the book of Joel tonight. So let me kind of take us where we've been. Thus far, we've looked at the book of Amos. We've looked at the book of Jonah, Hosea, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Obadiah, and now we're looking at Joel. Um, this is usually a time where I give you some long, extended historical introduction to the book and tell you kind of where it fits in into Israel's history in the ancient Near East um, and remind you that we're going through these chronologically in order. But in the case of Joel, no one really knows when it was written. Okay? We just don't have a really good guess. Um, some people think it was written before all the other minor prophets. Some people think it was written at the same time as Hosea and Amos. And other people think it was written after Obadiah and after the exile of Judah and Jerusalem. So that's roughly, give or take, a 500-year span of history. So (laughs) we don't really have a zero in on that at all, okay? I like the later date. That's why we're studying it later. But I really couldn't say that with certainty, that it was written later. Okay. The lack of historical information, however, does not make the book of Joel untrue. What it tells us, it lets us to focus merely on the timeless quality of the content of the book of Joel. So, what is the book of Joel all about? What is this timeless quality and content that I'm talking about already? Okay, I'm already pumping up the book of Joel. Maybe you can't match my expectations. Um, Well, if the prophets believe that Joel camped out, well, the prophets before Joel camped out in ideas like injustice and grace and redemption and the kingdom of God, God is warrior king, God's joy, faith, and humility. The theme of Joel, the main theme of Joel, is repentance. Repentance. Joel gives us a beautiful picture of repentance, what true repentance looks like, and all of its urgency, and all of its depth, and all of its power to restore us. God uses our repentance to bind back together what sin has broken. Tonight we're going to study a key passage in Joel that describes what our human repentance should look like and then what God's um, restoration, his divine restoration, always looks like. So we're going to look at what our repentance should look like and then also what God's restoration always looks like. So turn with me in the book of Joel. If you have a Bible, if you don't, you can just flip open your bulletin. That's fine. Or either way. Um, We're going to look at Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 27. It's kind of a lengthy passage, but I just really couldn't cut anything because it's beautiful. So, would you stand for the reading of Scripture? Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 27. Reading from the English Standard Version, translations in your bulletin. 
Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room, and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations." Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? This is a beautiful transition. Then, with all this repentance in mind, the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain and wine and oil, and you will be satisfied. I will will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land. His vanguard into the eastern sea, and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad, and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, of Israel, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain, the vat shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never be put to shame. Friends, these are the words of God, and they are more precious than gold, even much fine gold, and they are sweeter than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, it's a lot to take in. If we're not growing up on a farm or into animal husbandry, it's really hard to understand. And I pray, Father, that you would move our hearts and that you would move our minds and the affections of our hearts and our minds towards you, Jesus. I pray that you would move through um, this awkward setup of a room. And I pray that you would move through the tiredness that everyone feels, even in their bones. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to get your word nourish us with it force feed us with it if you need I pray Father that you revive our souls restore our fortunes move our hearts we need to hear from you whether we think we do or not and I pray Father that you'd honor that request that you'd fill us with your spirit and you'd help us um, to know that you are God we ask these things in Jesus' name Amen you can be seated thanks a few years ago, uh, about four years ago, I officiated my first wedding. Okay, 
It was probably one of the most unique weddings I'll ever perform. It was for a high school friend of my wife, Tier, and the bride and groom got married in the bride's backyard, their mom's backyard, or mom and dad's backyard, in Massachusetts. So I flew all the way from New, New Mexico to Massachusetts to do this wedding. Um, two things made this memorable, not the location. First, it was the first time I'd ever been a full-time minister. This was the summer, I'd, my first summer of being a full-time minister, which means this was the first time I'd ever worn the pastor badge on my shirt. Okay, do you know what that means? That means that I'm now open to ask any question you've ever thought of in your life or to avoid eye contact with at all costs. That's what the pastor badge means, just so you know. So if you're avoiding eye contact right now, you got it. Okay. Second, most of the wedding guests were not familiar with a living, breathing Christianity. They had perhaps read about it in history or read about it on the tombstones of ancestors. But most of the wedding crowd had uh, was thoroughly what's called post-Christian. These two factors led me to either be this weird curiosity that everyone sought out or to be something of a plague that everyone avoided at all costs. Well, one person in particular sought me out of this wedding. Uh, well, he was seated next to me at the reception. And it was a dinner, so he had really no choice but to talk to me. But he seemed pretty eager. Um, <laughs> anyway, it was the bride's cousin. And he asked me a really odd question. It was a hypothetical question, of course. And it went like this. He said, let's say that you could only say or do one thing in your life. Would you pray one prayer to God? Or would you do one good deed? So that was his hypothetical. He said, you're a Christian, you're a minister, tell me the answer. <laughs> one prayer, one good deed. So what he's saying is, what's more important to a Christian? Praying or doing? That's a pretty hard question. Okay. <laughs> Gosh, who knew I was going to get grilled up in Massachusetts? Okay. Really... Um, that's not a fair summary of what he was really asking. The cousin of the bride was really asking this. What is Christianity all about? What is Christianity all about? What one thing defines being a Christian? Well, what would you say? Maybe some of you are Christians here tonight. Most of you maybe. Maybe some of you aren't Christians tonight. What would you say the one thing that defines being a Christian is? Okay. This man at the wedding reception was basically asking me, point blank, you're a Christian. What does greatness look like in your life? What does greatness as a Christian in your life look like? Have you ever thought about that? What would you say? What's one thing you would say that you have to say or, ha or don't have to say? What is one thing that you're supposed to do or not do that makes you a Christian? What tells the world that you're a Christian? Is it that you act nice? Is it that you say please and thank you? and you try to be kind to people, is that you don't party, that you've never been caught dead, or you never would be caught dead with a solo cup in your hand. Is that you're emotionally sold out, that you're thrilled about Jesus, and that he speaks your name in the wind when you ride a motorcycle or go on mission trips. Or maybe it's your language. You don't curse, and you always try to talk positive about people. Or maybe it's your politics, you're a Republican who cares about unborn babies. Or you're a Democrat who cares about poor people. Are these things what we tell the world, what we tell ourselves, what Christianity is about? 
Well, there's a guy named Martin Luther who had a very different idea about what Christianity is all about. Luther started a movement designed to get back to the core, the essence of what Christianity was. And he started what would become the Protestant movement because he was tired of people centering the Christian life on fads, on formalities, and on bad theology. And so Martin Luther, about 500 years ago in 1517, made 95 theses, 95 points about what needs to change about Christianity. He tacked them to a church door. Okay? Do you know what the very first point he had on the 95 theses was? The very first point that he said, this is the first and foremost thing that needs to change. You know what the answer is? Repentance. Repentance. 500 years ago, Martin Luther wrote this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. I love the way that a pastor, Joe Novenson, flushes out what Luther is saying here. Because what he's saying is powerful. Listen to the way that Novenson puts it. Repentance is not an act. It's a lifestyle. It's not an occasional neighborhood we visit on a bad day. It's an address. We live on the corner of Broken and Repentance Street. Repentance is not holding our breaths. It's finally breathing. And so Martin Luther's definition of repentance changed our understanding of Christianity forever. Why? Why is repenting so powerfully important to living the Christian life? Why is this so important? Novenson again nails it. He says it this way. We believe, most of us believe, that greatness on any level equals doing the most right and doing the least wrong for the longest amount of time under the largest amount of circumstances. So basically, doing the most good, doing the least bad for the longest period of time, no matter what. But greatness in the realm of the Christian gospel is actually being the biggest, the fastest, and the deepest repenter. That's what greatness is. It's being the biggest, fastest, deepest repenter because Jesus' righteousness is enough. So repentance is what the Christian life is all about. The depth, the frequency, the quickness with which we repent is what we showcase to the world. It's what our public witness is all about. But we don't have to take Joe Novenson's word for it or Martin Luther's word for it. We can take the Bible's word for it. We can take the scripture before us, Joel, the book of Joel, and his word for it. God speaking through him just tells us how central repentance is. Repentance is what we blow the trumpet about to gather the people over. Okay, that's what Joel is telling us. It's what we blow the trumpet about to gather the people over. Okay? And maybe some of you are silently asking yourselves, you're squirming, you're kind of going, what exactly is repentance and why is it so important? Well, we're in luck because this passage addresses those two questions and some other side questions head on. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 27 tells us this truth. Repentance starts with a heart attitude that ripples into a lifestyle change. 
So repentance starts with a heart attitude that ripples into a lifestyle change. And we repent because God restores us through our repentance. We repent because God restores us through repentance. Let me put it more simply. God restores us through our repentance. So repentance is a life and heart change. And we repent because we believe that that's what God uses to renovate us. Okay? So repentance is a life and heart change, and we believe that God uses this life and heart change to renovate us, to renew us. Okay. So our passage in Joel is a little bit of a two-step. Okay? It begins with a call to repent, verses 12 through 17, and then it ends with God's promise to use our repentance for our good. And that's verses 18 through 27. So you can really break it up in two huge chunks. So let me make this progression clear. Verses 12 through 17, God through Joel calls us to repent. And in this plea, he defines repentance, and he tells us why we repent, which are huge, important issues. So he tells us what repentance is and why we repent. Okay? Verses 18 through 27, God calls us, he promises to restore us through repentance. So in this promise, God defines restoration and why we need restoration. Okay? So very simply, we're going to talk about repentance, we're going to define it, we're going to talk about why we do it, and we're going to talk about restoration. We're going to talk about what it is and why it's important. Okay, that's really where we're going tonight. So let's begin with the beginning, verses 12 through 17, and the call to repentance. Look, I really clearly understand that repentance is one of these churchy words that you hear a lot. Okay, maybe it's the sort of thing that people like paint on, the, on a sandwich board and walk around New York City yelling. Okay, they're John, John the Baptist, modern day, okay, scraggly hair, beard, crazy look in their eye. Okay, but maybe eating locusts for real. I don't know. But look, um, it's one of those things that we use a lot in the church, but we rarely define. And so let, that's why I'm thankful for this chapter. Uh, for Joel 2 and then verses 12 through 17, because it gives us a definition of repentance. It's a really helpful definition. And it's graphic and it's urgent, which I really appreciate. And it all starts in verse 12, a thumbnail sketch of repentance. Okay? Look at verse 12 with me. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. We see just from this verse that repentance is about four things. Okay? Repentance is a community project. It's attentive to details. It's dramatically life-altering. And it's deeply convicting. I'm going to say this again because we're going to talk about them again. Community project, attentive to details, dramatically life-altering, and deeply convicting. Okay, those are the four features of repentance. And I'm going to unpack these using verse 12 and the verses following. First, repentance is a community project. It's communal. Perhaps this is the most shocking of the parts of the definition of repentance, right? We see just from this verse that it's a community project, okay? That certainly turning from our sins and from our secret pet desires and turning towards God feels and often is individual, okay? I'm not denying that, okay? After all, your particular sins and the loves of your life are not always the same as my particular sins and the loves of my life. Okay? So there has to be some individual 
repentance going on. And it often looks individual. But what I think is so challenging about this verse and so challenging about this passage is that repentance is also communal. It's also plural. In verse 12, God is addressing the people of God, the church, RUF, and not merely Joel himself or his best friend or his frenemy or worse. Okay? This isn't just singling out somebody. Joel's like, I really don't like that guy, God. Can we just give him a message to repent and everyone else is okay? Okay, that's not what's going on. And we see this further in verses 15 through 17. God, through Joel, calls for the sacred assembly of what? A person? No, people. And a congregation, a group of people congregating, set apart by what? Repentance. He calls for who? Elders. Children. Infants who are still nursing. Brides who are in the bridal chamber. Bridegrooms who are on their wedding night. Priests at the temple. Every single person is to gather around the project of repentance. That's a pretty radical thing. I I imagine if you get married, you would rather not have Joel in your bedroom. But here we are, okay? That's what he's saying. So we have to ask ourselves, what would it look like to repent as a community? To own our sins and to do right by others and by God, not just in private prayer. That is a question that Joel is asking us to ask. Second, repentance is attentive to details. Repentance owns particular sins and moves in faith toward a particular God. Okay, We see this in verse 12's urgency, even now, and directness. Return to me. Those are the two ways he's saying it. So God tells us to examine our lives recently, even now, verse 12. Here's a question. When's the last time you or I repented? Okay? Here's another question. It's even harder. What was the last thing that you or I repented over? A hurt that we did to a friend? A failure to love a stranger well? And God specifies that this kind of repentance involves a return to him, the Lord your God, verse 13. He's the only one who can forgive our harms. He's the only one who can forgive our failures to love. God's waiting at the end of the road, not to put you back to work, but to throw you a feast to remind you that you're his child. Whether your next act is your first act of repentance or your 500th act of repentance. God is preparing a feast for his children, not to put you back into the coal mines. And that's hard to believe. Third, okay, repentance is dramatically life-altering. That is, we change the direction we're moving our lives towards. That's what repentance is all about. In the words of verse 12, we return, we turn around, we begin again. In military terms, this looks like an about face. Have you ever seen that? Where people are commanded, there's some guy barks an order, there's a pivot, there's a whole new direction of an entire squadron facing a different way to do battle. That's, that's what repentance looks like. And so repentance is a retreat from self and evil and a charge towards good and God. When confronted with our bad intentions, do we excuse them away? 
Or do we own our sins and live afresh? And live afresh in the power of Jesus to turn our evil into his goodness? That's the question. Are we, when we repent, are we just brushing it off? Are we brushing off the bad intentions of our hearts? Or are we actually owning them and living as if it were true that God could change us? The fourth and final piece of repentance definition is how deeply convicting repentance is. Okay? In the language of verse 12, it's with all your heart, fasting, weeping, and mourning. We're convinced by the hurt we're causing other people. We're convinced by the hurt we're causing ourselves. We're convinced by the hurt we're causing God. And we don't just regret things like gossip. We're heartbroken over them. That's what repentance is. We don't just wear a frown on the outside. We grieve on the inside, according to verse 13. Okay? But, I'm sure you're all asking, how can we possibly combine all four of these pieces of repentance together at the same time? I just spent probably like five, ten minutes on each piece of this. How do we put this all together? How do we repent as a community with detail, life change, and conviction? I think this is one of those questions that we should be asking ourselves more. We should be discussing this at Diligent. We should be discussing this over the Bible small group. We should be discussing this in our, in our dorm rooms and in our apartments. What would it look like to be a community that did that? That took RDF large group and made it real life? But if you've read a book like Blue Like Jazz, Don Miller gives us a hint, a hint of what biblical repentance might look like on a college campus. And here's the term, reverse confessional. Reverse confessionals. Okay? Miller and a few Christian friends at Reed College in Portland decided to set up confession booths at this all-night rave at Reed College. Okay? So imagine this. Everyone's naked, glow sticks, craziness, Okay, drugs, alcohol, and they say, let's set up a confessional, okay? But instead of Miller and his friends asking people to confess their sins to him and to them, he and his friends confess their sins and the sins of the church to the people at the rave. Which is a really beautiful idea. And so Miller does just this. He sat in a confession booth and acted out his repentance on behalf of the Christian community at Reed College and himself. He asked forgiveness for not feeding the poor and the sick. He asked forgiveness for not loving those who persecute him. He asked forgiveness for mixing his personal politics with Jesus' message. And he asked forgiveness for not carrying Christ into a conversation about the church, but instead leading with a personal agenda. Now, doing the same exact idea at New Mexico State University probably is going to feel a little bit cheap and a little bit unoriginal. Okay, so I'm not suggesting that we set up reverse confessionals at an all-night rave that doesn't exist. Okay? <laughs> Shocking. Okay, but do we get that confessing our sins publicly is a powerful way to say what Christianity is all about? That, do you have any idea what it would mean if we actually were the kind of people that said, you know, I've wronged you. I've hurt you. And I'm sorry. And I'm going to do everything within my power to not do that again. 
What kind of impact would that have on New Mexico State University? A pretty powerful one. Instead, we lead with other things. This is what God is asking us to blow our trumpets about and gather folks over. Repentance. Public confession. But what motivated Don Miller to confess his sins? And what motivates us to repent personally or publicly? Maybe some of you are just, this feels awful. Like a heavyweight you can't bear. The context of our passage, Joel chapter 1 and Joel chapter 2 verses 1 through 11, tell us that repentance starts because of the raging consequences of our sins. Okay? Joel pictures God's just judgment of our sins as a locust swarm that destroys everything in sight and a storming, savage army that's on the move. But the mere fear of sin's consequences will not lead us to repent in the long run. It just won't. Why? Because Joel, in the passage, is not fixating on that point. He's enticing us by describing God's character in verse 13. Listen to his description. God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. God relents over disaster. So the prophet Joel tells us we need to not only turn from sin's punishment, but we need to turn towards God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. By the way, that's the best definition I've ever heard of the Hebrew word kesed, which is translated here for steadfast love. Okay? In other words, God will always receive us when we lay down our foolish self-efforts and run freely towards the death, the cleansing death of Jesus Christ. Do we get that? That's huge. That is a huge motive for repentance because many of us are afraid to go there because we're afraid that when we do a trust fall, we'll get dropped. And what this passage is saying is that's not how God operates. That's not who he is. Simply put, repentance comes out of acceptance. Repentance comes out of acceptance. And in the words of Paul's letter to the Romans, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It's a wonderful thought. Think about that for a second. It's Jesus' kindness, not his harsh finger-wagging, not raising his fist in the air to smite us, that leads us to repentance. Jesus' kindness is what makes him more desirable than sin. And that's what leads to repentance. This kind of Jesus makes us want to repent. This kind of Jesus, the kind Jesus, the safe Jesus, the warm Jesus, makes us want to turn from our sin, makes us want to do what Jesus asks us to do, even when it's hard. So in our discussion of verses 12 through 17, we've talked about the call to repentance, and we've already crossed well in our way to verses 18 through 27. Okay? The promise of restoration. And these promised rewards of restoration, verses 18 through 27, promised rewards of restoration, these promised rewards are what's called, by the passage, restoration. Okay? Let me read the verse that I think is super helpful in understanding this. And it is verse 25. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. 
the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. Look, I get that restoration is a lot like repentance. It's one of those words that we hear maybe a couple times, maybe less than repentance, but we still don't really get. But we get a beautiful definition of this in our text. Um, It's sad that most of us don't really understand how beautiful definition of this is, because most of us didn't grow up in a worn, torn agricultural area. We didn't grow up in, in a fertile part of a desert known as Israel, surrounded by nations that hate them. Okay? So it's very hard for us to grasp the imagery here. Um, look, the picture of God driving our enemy army into the desert and the sea in verse 20, and the abundant grain, wine, oil, livestock, figs, and early rains don't move our souls. Okay, There's a reason for that. So let me give you a closer-to-home example of restoration. Shoes. We wear shoes, don't we? If you've seen my Puma sneakers recently, by the way, I wore them not on purpose. I don't like props, but you maybe have seen them. They're covered in duct tape. They're falling apart. Okay? It's sad. Very sad. I've left tears. I haven't. Um, but, look, the duct tape's not working. The soles are falling away from the shoe, and I'm probably going to have to throw them away. But there is another option, isn't there? I could have them restored. I could go to a modern-day cobbler, I don't really know what that is, and get my shoes resold, right? S-O-L-E-D. Now, what makes me want to resole my shoes versus just throw them away? What's the difference? The value of the shoe. How much I care for and love the shoe makes me want to restore them or throw them away, right? So, if I love my Pumas... I would resole them and not just throw them in the garbage. But I don't, so I'm throwing them away. Okay? Look, in the words of Al Walters, God does not make junk. God does not make junk. And God does not junk what he made. Okay? God does not make junk, and he does not junk what he made. That is, God loves what he made, and he wants to restore it. Let me put it this way. God's salvation... His rescue of me does not look like throwing away Sid Druin and replacing him with Sid Druin 2.0, amazingly doing the things that Sid Druin 1.0 could not do and better. Okay? Why? Because God loves me. He loves the people that return to him, who, who return to him with everything that we've got. He loves the people who trust in Christ's love to restore them. He loves the people who understand that he is kinder than sin. But along this, with this beautiful, positive picture of renewal that we get from a shoe metaphor of all things, uh, there's also an ugly picture of, an ugly negative of restoration. What the swarming locusts have eaten. The consequences of our sins. Look, I don't, if we're honest, we don't have to look too far to see this culturally, sociologically, in our lives. We can see what the locust is eating right now. Can't we? We're in the midst of a pornographic epidemic. Do you guys realize this? Culturally, we are taking the God-given gift of sex, and we are selling it, we are using it, we are abusing it at an addictive and destructive rate. Just, I'm going to tell you some statistics just to give you a sense of the story. Each year, the adult industry in America makes $13 billion. Billion. 
Okay? One in five people who use a mobile phone to search the internet look up pornography. Okay? The average college-age person first saw a pop-up ad for pornography at the age of eight. Eight. By the age of 12, the average person who's in college has viewed pornography. 90% of boys have seen pornography by the age of 18. 60% of girls have seen pornography by the age of 18. Over 40% of teens have have sexted. That is, sent a sexual message or picture to someone else. Over 60% of guys look at pornography for five hours or more a week. Over 20% of girls look at pornography for five hours a week or more. Look, five hours a week is a lot of time. Okay? So think about what if we include the people who don't look at pornography for more than for up to five hours. It's safe to assume that the numbers are much higher. It's safe to assume that nearly every male in college has a problem with pornography. And it's safe to assume that almost half of females have a problem in some way, shape, or form with pornography. Just by statistics alone, right? And this isn't even getting into hookup culture. This isn't even getting into sex outside of marriage, okay? But my point is not to go in some sort of like political soapbox and, you know table outside of Corbett and shout things, okay? My point is not to make you feel shamed if you're struggling with pornography, which most of you probably are, okay? My point is, is, this, is not to pat on the back of those of you who aren't struggling with pornography when you look at the other dirty, rotten sinners, okay? My point is Joel's point. God promises restoration, God promises that he can renew you, that he can renew me, that he can give virginity back to his people. God does not junk his children. He restores them. Listen to the way he puts it in verse 25. I'll restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. We only need to turn to him to allow his wounded hands and his wounded feet to heal us. Let me end with a story that I once heard that kind of traces God's restoring heart. In college, a, a pastor named Matt Chandler um, befriended a single mother who was a little older than him and who had a child, obviously, in a class. And Matt and her talked about the gospel they had a good relationship, a great friendship. He and his friends babysat for her. Um, they had a, a real relationship. And Matt decided to invite her to a Christian conference, right? The old bait and switch. Hey, I've got a friend playing a band. Okay? All of a sudden, it was a sex talk. And he was mortified. He was embarrassed. He didn't know what was going to happen. The speaker got up to speak about sex, and he took a red rose. He smelled it, and he threw it out into the crowd. And he said, I want everyone in this crowd to smell the rose and to fondle it. Okay? That was his command. And so he began a very insensitive and terrible sex talk. And the speaker at the end of this talk asked for the rose back. And someone in the front of the audience or the crowd brought the rose back. And of course the rose was broken and worn and losing petals faster than it, was, than it even had them. 
And still holding the beat-up rose, the speaker asked, Who wants this rose? Who wants this rose? The point was, no one wants someone who's been broken. No one wants someone who's been used sexually. But Chandler kept looking at the rose and looking at his friend, and looking at his rose and looking at his friend, and he said, Do you know who wants that rose? Jesus wants that rose. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do we get with a God who abounds in steadfast love and kindness? No rose is too worn. No human being is too broken to be restored. Simply put, Jesus is the biggest, the fastest, and the deepest rescuer. And that, ultimately, is behind anything that Christian greatness looks like. That is what Christianity is all about. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that we believe that your grace is that big, and that powerful, and that deep, and that wide, and that true, and that heartbreaking. That I pray that you'd help us to look honestly at ourselves to realize that, boy, whether or not we're being ravaged by pornography, whether or not we're being ravaged by gossip, whether or not we're being ravaged by pride, I pray that you would help us to remember that your acceptance leads to our repentance. That you help us to remember that you're a kind God who's slow to anger and quick to love. That your love never gives up and never breaks and is always and forever. And I pray, Father, that you'd help us to cling, to turn, to love you in return. I pray, Father, for this grace and this mercy. Tender. Be tender with us, Jesus.